0: Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Now, this week marks a departure from our usual format. We're talking about 1997, the death of Brian Deneke and the trial of Dustin Camp, and about the film, it's called Bomb City, that portrays those events. Bomb City releases nationwide February 9th, and this week, on January 23rd, it's being premiered to the city of Amarillo, In a special screening at the Globe News Center. Now, get ready, I'm about to give you a much longer intro than usual, but first, a word from ROI Online, the sponsor of Hey Amarillo. Most business leaders struggle with how to transition from traditional marketing into modern marketing. ROI Online has a team of experts that makes it easy. They help you make a plan, and then they do most of the work and set you up for success. ROI can guide you to success at roionline.com. In Amarillo's history, there have been a very few big moments that have captured the city's attention and caused some significant soul searching among the people who live here. In the late 1970s and early 80s, it was J. Kelly Pinkerton and the murder of Sarah Don Lawrence. In recent years, maybe it was the allegations and lawsuits against Stanley Marsh, who up until that point had sort of been a local hero. And even the dysfunction of the city council in the last couple of years had certain people in the city wondering what we've become. Then there was 1997 and 1998, when the 19-year-old punk musician Brian Dinicky was killed in a deliberate hit-and-run by Dustin Camp, a 17-year-old football player from Tascosa High School. The months leading up to Dinicky's death were marked by increasing division between a group of jocks from white-collar families— These were, quote, the good kids, the preps. Some called them white hats because their style at the time was to wear white ball caps with logos of colleges on them. And on the other side were a group of kids and young adults on Amarillo's fringe. They were skateboarders, musicians, punks. They wore chains and mohawks. They had tattoos. Some of them were high school dropouts and runaways. The preps called them freaks. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you know that guests have talked before about divisiveness in Amarillo, about a suspicion of people who maybe don't fit the mold. Our city was founded by mavericks and pioneers. We've we've weathered our share of eccentrics, but our isolation has definitely produced a form of sameness. And if it's noticeable today, it was really noticeable 20 years ago. How did Amarillo treat its outcasts? In 1997, the tensions between the preps and the punks built and built over a series of months. Most of the kids were underage. Both groups did a lot of casual drinking. The punks had stories about how they were always being harassed by the preps. They were spit upon in the school hallways. They had bottles thrown at them as they skateboarded. They were beaten up on weekends. For these jocks, harassing punks had sort of become an extracurricular sport. The preps had stories, too, about how the punks were aggressive or violent, about how they were asking for it. According to the jocks, they were thugs. They were sociopaths. Now, Brian Dinicky was largely seen as the leader of Amarillo's punk scene. He was 19 years old. He used to bring in bands to perform. He was passionate. He had a large group of loyal friends. He was a high school dropout, but he worked for Stanley Marsh, putting up the mock traffic signs that covered front yards in the city during that period. They, they were everywhere. And by all accounts, Dinicky was charming and friendly. His appearance maybe said something else, but his friends called him Sunshine because of his personality. Now, at the same time, Dustin Camp was equally popular in his crowd. He played JV football at Tascosa. He did pretty well in school. He was known as a class clown. On December 12th, 1997, a series of events resulted in a fight breaking out between the punks and the White Hats in the parking lot of the IHOP on Western, near I-40. It was cold that night. There was snow on the ground. The conflict spilled over across the street into what was then the parking lot of the Western Plaza Mall. This was before Western Plaza was bulldozed for new development. Now the exact number of people involved is still disputed, but the outcome is something the city won't soon forget. Because during the fight, Dustin Camp, driving his Cadillac, mowed down Brian Dinicky. He ran directly into him. He didn't stop. He didn't swerve, and Dinicky died instantly. All the participants scattered. The next morning, Camp was arrested and charged with murder, and the trial that followed captured the attention of the city and even the nation. In the courtroom, Camp's defense attorney painted Dinicky and his friends as violent offenders, while Camp was a good, solid Christian young man who was simply using his vehicle to defend a friend who was being attacked. But using police evidence and eyewitness testimony, the prosecution described a very different picture, culminating in the account of a young woman who was in the back seat of Camp's car during that fight. She later became the valedictorian of her senior class at Tascosa, and in the trial, she testified that Camp had said, I'm a ninja in my caddy, upon speeding toward Denicky. And after striking him, Camp said, I bet he liked that. Despite this testimony, Camp got off extremely light. The jury convicted him of manslaughter rather than murder. The punishment was light too. He got 10 years probation and a $10,000 fine. And despite the conservative backbone of the city, hardly anyone thought this was just. A Globe News poll after the verdict showed that 74% of respondents didn't believe the punishment fit the crime. Kel Seliger was mayor at the time, and he actually announced that the verdict was not the verdict of the community, but only of those 12 people on the jury. And those jury members, we, we still don't know who they were. The judge sealed their names out of concern for their safety. As for the punks, the outcome reaffirmed everything they had feared. They didn't trust the system, and as expected, the system let them down. Reporters from big-time publications, the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Texas Monthly, began descending on the city in the aftermath of the trial. Amarillo residents began asking themselves some hard questions. Do we value some kids more than others? And do we make that value judgment based on the way those kids look? What if the roles had been reversed? What if a punk had run over a star football player? Would the outcome have been any different? The reason I'm talking about this today is because a film company led by Sheldon Chick and Jamie Brooks, both of whom grew up here in Amarillo, are releasing the new feature length movie Bomb City, which chronicles the death of Brian Dinicky. Sheldon produced the film and co wrote it with Jamie, who directed it. Sheldon's brother Cody, another Amarillo native, was also part of the crew. And so for this week's episode of Hey Amarillo, I spoke on the phone to Sheldon about his history with Amarillo, about making the film, and about why Brian Dennehy's story still matters today. Here's Sheldon Chick, producer and co-writer of the film Bomb City. Sheldon, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast.
1: Hey, what's up, man? Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, sure. I I'm excited to talk to you. I, before we talk about uh the film, before we talk about Bomb City and the events in Amarillo that that sort of led to it, can can you sort of establish yourself, uh your connection to Amarillo to uh, to start?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was uh I'm born and raised in Amarillo. I uh I graduated from Randall High School uh way back when in uh 2001, so Um, you know, I spent, you know, the latter part or the early part of my teens there. And then uh, once I turned about 20, I uh, moved out to uh, Lubbock and then on to Dallas.
0: Was your, uh, was your intention to get into filmmaking or uh, advertising, all that kind of stuff. I mean, was, was that your goal from the beginning? Oh, you know, it's kind of funny
1: because my dad actually was in advertising, but it never really crossed into my mind to jump into advertising or that was never really in my mind. I was always just a musician. And uh, it's another thing my parents kind of, you know, gifted me at a young age. Me and my brother, we always played music with my parents growing up in Amarillo at different churches. And then as we, you know, got into our teenage years, we joined a metal band, and we spent five years on the music scene in Amarillo playing metal music at different warehouses and all that stuff. So,
0: And that's a pretty typical path from uh, playing music in church to going into a metal band. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> just,
1: you know, like, it, it, you, you kind of, whatever piques your interest growing up, and you just kind of fall in love with, like, Led Zeppelin or, you know, like, just different bands growing up right against the machine, and, you know, then you, you kind of take those skills you learned early on and move them over into uh, being in a band.
0: So tell me, tell me about your career path. How did you go from that to what you're doing now?
1: Um, it, was, it, was, it was kind of, you know, like, it was fluid, and I was, I was kind of working on, like, projections and stuff like that for our, for our band, so I was starting to learn video editing, uh, it was kind of during the boom of, like, software music. So I was, you know, le- learning how to do different samples. And then I met Jamie down here in Dallas, who's also from Amarillo. We met, you know, we I had known him when we were growing up. I graduated high school with his brother. You know, I met him down here later on, and he was he was a filmmaker, and he was in film school. And um, he just kind of, he, he started coming out to some of my band practices, and we started talking about just different ideas we had, and we, you know, started doing short films together. So... All those skills I had put to the band kind of just translated right into filmmaking.
0: And that's Jamie Brooks, who directed Bomb City.
1: Yes, correct. He is the director of Bomb City.
0: So uh, you, you said that you were... Um, I guess it sounds like you were probably in, in your early teens uh, when the Dustin Camp and Brian Dinicky events happened here. Um, what do you remember uh, about that time? I mean, b- beyond the details that... Clearly, you know about the story. I mean, do you remember that from when you were a kid?
1: I I definitely remembered it. Uh, I mean, I was 15 at the time, so I I just remember there's a few things that really stuck out in my mind, and that was the MTV documentary. You know, I I can, like, very vividly remember watching it at my parents' house. It just, the, the way the story had expanded out past, you know, the Amarillo lines into a national story, I can remember, you know, watching that documentary and thinking, wow, you know, this happened here. And then, you know, by just in high school, from the time I was 15 to when the trial actually took place, uh, I turned 17, and just the dividing lines in high school, you could see, you know, a lot of those dividing lines at, at the time still.
0: Was that something that you personally experienced? I mean, being a musician, was uh, did, did you see sort of that division between, you know, the jocks or the preps or the rich kids and, and people who are more creative? or? Yeah, and,
1: you know, it, I, like it wasn't, like a lot of my friends were, you know, both sides. I, I grew up playing sports and, you know, I loved football and all the things that you, you would put into, you know, a jock stereotype. I was all, you know, I was part of that growing up. And so all my friends were still part of that. I just, you know, kind of got outgrew by the football team or whatever and moved into the arts. But it's just, there was kind of a transition in there for me from the time I was, you know, 15, I, I wasn't in a band. And then when I turned 16, I was just, I, I kind of had a different perspective of myself. And I, you know, looking back as we were t- starting to uh, want to tell this story, I just kind of looked at how I had changed and, you know, you're a product of your environment. And so I realized how much all those things probably affected me subconsciously as much as, you know, I could p- put a finger on it. Hey, this really affected me. It was more subconscious than just your environment and how it affects you.
0: Tell me about getting to the point where you thought, okay. Twenty years later, I want to tell this story. I want to tell it um, in a different way than it's been told before. Whether the newspaper articles, the MTV documentary—I mean, walk me through that process.
1: Jamie and myself and my brother—we had—we had done so many short films. We just kind of got to the point where we were—we knew we were ready to do a full feature. And you know, you throw out ideas, and just uh, the Brian story had stuck with with us. And even Jamie and my brother—we were—we just both felt like. Like, it was right to do a story, you know, based from where we're from. Uh, it just felt right, if that makes sense. It just, you know, it felt like it was something we, we felt good about. We, we loved the message in the story. And um, it was just, it was just right, the right story at that time.
0: I don't want to presume that everybody knows exactly what happened here. So c- could you kind of walk me through, you know, the, the factual details of the story and, and just kind of paint that picture? What was the deal?
1: I mean it was you know, it was kind of one of those uh it's Idle Hands, you know, Amarillo, Friday night. The the punks were at IHOP and uh, you know, Brian and or actually Chris Olds and John King and some of their friends were at IHOP and there was kind of a skirmish between Dustin Camp and those guys at IHOP that night and you know, researching the story. Those things were commonplace, you know, for for all all the the kids that were kind of the outsiders. So, those little skirmishes were happening, you know, from the time they were put your hair in a mohawk, you start getting a little bit of that slack. So, they had, you know, they had received a, enough bullying over that time that those things build up over time. And so there was a skirmish between them. And then that skirmish built up to, um, you know, we're going to meet and fight in Western Plaza parking lot, which, you know, those fights never go well. There's, you know, 100 kids in a parking lot. Uh, with nothing to do. And then there's a fight and I, I, you know, I guess Dustin just, uh, drove his car through the fight. Um, he ran over and, uh, killed Brian. And from, you know, from that point, it, you, you move into the court case or the events after that, that kind of transpired that, you know, caught national attention.
0: A lot of the reason it caught national attention was because you had these two groups, um, sort of going against each other, whether it was you want to identify it as the punks against the preps, or the preps against the punks? Blue collar kids, white collar kids, and I, I guess a lot of the feeling was that you know Amarillo has a pretty conservative culture, and there was some, you know, there was there was some definite sides taking, you know, whether or not uh, that the punks would would be identified as you know being antisocial or asking for it, or whether you should side with these nice good kids who you know were just football player kids, and, and there were there were people just making assumptions about everybody on either side.
1: Yeah, and I think that a lot of that was built through the court case that just, you know, they kind of vilified the punk lifestyle, and it, it always seemed like even Brian was on trial, you know, during the, the court hearings, and he was the one that was murdered. So it was just kind of all of that, you know, got pushed really to the forefront, and, you know, how the national media, you know, will run with stories like that, and it was just, it seemed like a gross injustice when the you know with the I'm a ninja and my caddy there was just so many things that kind of pointed to a different verdict and there was people obviously you know on both sides of it tell me it, about it felt like a
0: go ahead well t- tell me knowing what happened um and deciding all right this is a story that we want to tell this is a message that we think is important tell me how you went about the process of researching it writing it I mean all the stuff that happens before you actually start shooting a movie.
1: Oh, man. Um, I mean, we developed this thing. It was, we, we were, we're at five years, the five year mark now as we're beginning to release. So, like, we, we tossed the idea around about the story. Uh, you move into, okay, the first thing we have to do is talk to the Dinickies, so, which, you know, we're from Amarillo. So, we were one friend away from, you know, talking to them to sitting down with them. You know, one of the hardest things we did was just sitting down with them and asking them for permission. And uh, what was know, that like? Permission. Um, it was, you know, it's it's just one of those moments that you 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 think you know how it's gonna go. You you build up this, you know. Me and Jamie talking before we go in, we're like, okay, we're just gonna ask them about Brian and they'll talk about it. But when we got there, it was kind of quiet, <laughs> and so we just, you know, laid out there what we what we wanted to do, what you know, what what we felt the message of the story was, and how we felt it was unique coming from someone you know from Amarillo because you know over the years, so many people had come to the Denikeys wanting to do the story and wanting, you know, wanting to make the film, but it just never worked out. You know, we, we met with them and they, you know, they said, yeah, we we give you our blessing. And just over the time from that, from that moment on, our relationship with them just expanded out and they're like family to us
0: now. Had they given that, that permission to other filmmakers over the years? You said that, that other projects hadn't worked out. Was it other reasons they hadn't worked out or or was it something to do with the Yeah.
1: Someone had optioned the story from them. Uh, and I think he held that option for 10 years. And then just during our research, too, Pamela Koloff, who wrote wrote an article in Texas Monthly, she had optioned her article to someone. So people had, you know, this. we, we were actually, when we started getting into development, we are like, we can't believe the movie hasn't already been made. Just because there's so many things, you know, that are so relevant now, uh, it just, you know, wasn't meant to be or they couldn't make it happen for whatever reason.
0: And then other than the denicky family, I mean, there are still participants in that story who are still around you know still live in Amarillo live in Texas I mean did you go about trying to to meet or talk to some of those people
1: I mean yeah we expanded through Jason Dennecke, uh you know we interviewed him and then we interview with John King, who was, you know, one of Brian's good friends there the night of the fight. Uh, just so many of Brian's friends. You know, we, we talked to anybody who would talk to us, honestly, that, you know, knew Brian growing up. And, you know, we sat down with the girl that was in the back seat of the car that night. We sat down with her. You know, we did as much. We pulled as much, you know, personal information from people. You know, and it's, it's hard to ask someone to relive, you know, one of the probably the most tragic moment of their life. And uh, everyone was very forthcoming with, you know, information and help us kind of build that spirit of what, what Brian, you know, represented when he was alive.
0: Tell me about the process of writing the screenplay. I know that anytime you have a, a true story uh, and then you start to turn it into a movie, there are elements that you have to leave out. There are things you have to tweak. You know, it's it's based on a true story, but it's not, you know, based on actual court transcripts or, or things like that. So how did you go about deciding, all right, this is what we need to adjust. This is what we need to leave out. How did that work?
1: It, it, it's kind of hard to explain, like, the flow of the writing process. You just, we, we Jamie and I, uh, we, we wrote it together, and we just, you know, we start spitballing and we start writing. And we know you, you kind of build a timeline out of what, you, you know, these these events are crucial to the story. And then you, as you're, it, it's hard to package someone's, you know, life or even those events, it's hard to package that in a two-hour movie and how, you know, how deep can you get without it being, a you know, a season <laughs> on HBO or something. So right. we just kind of roll through the script and, we you know, you play on your own personal experiences growing up. Man, there's just, there you know, there's so much left out of the movie that, you know, could be. And I, we, we tried really hard to incorporate, like, little nuggets um, in the film. I'll give you an example. Like, Brian, the, the character in the film, He's at a punk show, and he goes and you know there's a there's a 13 year old kid at the show. He goes over and talks to him. Well, that kid's wearing a mailman hat. That's because when Brian was that age, he always wore a mailman hat. So we threw a little bit of those things in there that you know kind of give a shout back to you know his full life story. And we both Jamie and I both have kind of different writing styles. Where he's he's real he's a real visual thinker, and he's you know he can see a scene. He's a director. He can see the scene playing out, and he he's great at writing action. And then I'm really good at writing dialogue. So we 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 kind of play to each other's strengths, and you know we kind of work it out with each other. So it's nice to have someone to write with, so you can bounce ideas off of each other. And I think it makes the ideas that actually do make it to the final script that much better because they've they've won you know small arguments or you know different opinions from somebody else. They've already won those battles.
0: When you got to the the, the process of, um, you know, you, you got the script finished, uh, you began casting, uh, got the funding in place, and then you started shooting, how much of it were you able to actually shoot here in Amarillo?
1: I think we did we did three days of principal photography there, and then we went back with our DP and shot like three to four days of just B-roll and different, you know, cityscapes and stuff.
0: Because the Western Plaza parking lot, you know, is, is no longer in existence here.
1: Yeah, yeah we shot that the The fight scene at Valley View Mall, which is actually no longer in existence here in Dallas, okay. And it, that mall is eerily similar to okay. Western Plaza.
0: One of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, you've mentioned a couple of times that going into it, you knew that the story had a message. Um, you you knew that it was relevant to the times today, and that that Brian represented something. Can you talk to me about that? I mean, what starting to make a movie and saying this is what we want people to get out of the movie beyond the story itself what what was that point
1: the main theme of the entire movie is you know don't judge a book by its cover and we always knew that and there was just there's you know so many little pieces and we the way we wrote the story was to kind of put the audience in a position where we we want you to judge the punks, and we want you to look at them like that so hopefully it plays it kind of plays into you know your as a viewer your own personal bias and kind of builds you know throughout but you get to know these kids you get to kind of live their life with them it's a you know it's it's a different kind of culture that a lot of people don't experience and it's a family that you know the the kids with their friends they're a family they're a punk tribe and we we kind of it's a harsh world so it's real gritty and the language is bad and so there's a lot of reasons for that society would be like oh those are bad kids but as you get to know them your perception changes so if we wanted to kind of do that you know to the viewer and hopefully get them to the end to to be you know in love with you know the lifestyle and brian and you know hopefully just see the tragedy in the event
0: i come from a marketing background and during that career i learned two things Number one, marketing is essential because it's the story you tell the world about your company. And number two, marketing is usually the last thing on your mind when you're starting or running a business. Maybe you're leading a company and you're thinking strategically or maybe you're deeply involved in production. Whatever the case, you don't have time for the details of marketing, like social media or building an email list or keeping a website up to date. That's why you need ROI online. This local group of marketing experts comes alongside your business to tell your story. You get an entire team of people who are invested in building your brand, but you don't have to manage them, you don't have to babysit them. They do all the heavy lifting while you focus on the big picture. The results speak for themselves. To learn more about how ROI Online can help your business, visit roionline.com or follow them on Instagram or Facebook. ROI Online, leading the modern marketing movement. Tell me about the response to the movie. Uh, I know that it's won a lot of different awards at you know at film festivals and places like that. Can you kind of talk to me about that? The first
1: festival we did was here in Dallas, Diff, and we won the Audience Award there. We won the Audience Award in Nashville. Um, we won the Audience Award in Louisville. We got Best Director in Bend Film, which is you know, an awesome festival in Oregon. Um, Dave Davis. That play, Brian, he actually won a couple of Best Acting awards. Um, so it's been a great festival run, and it's it's great to share a story that has such social relevance. And people stick around for the Q and As. It, it, it's kind of like a documentary in a way. I, I don't know if you ever been to a documentary Q and A, but they're so the audience is so engaged because it's you know it's it's kind of a journalism, and it it just it's it, our film kind of felt like that as we were touring. I was like, man, we're so lucky that this film interest people with, they have questions and they want to talk about their communities. And we learned, you know, as we're touring to different cities with the film, we just so many people came to us and they're, they're like, man, this is, this is basically my story growing up, you know, and the crowd is in tears and it's, you know, it's really tough subject matter. You know, it's not a feel good film, but just kind of impacted people. And that's, you know, that's kind of been the wind in our sails just going through the festival run up into this, the, uh, the release we're coming up on.
0: Right. And so we're recording this a few days before that release in Amarillo. I, I wanted to know what you think, you know, what are you feeling before, you know, showing the film for the city where it happens? What's that like?
1: Personally, you know, we're, we're all a little nervous. Uh, that's just natural. Um, we're excited. We don't want the film to, to like, cause a divide. We want it to bring people together. We want it to be, like, we don't want people to take offense. Some people will link it back to their past. Uh, obviously, it's going to be kind of a flashback for a lot of people that lived in those times in Amarillo. I always said, t- instead of taking offense, I would prefer them to take action and, you know, maybe maybe reach a handout to somebody or, you know, try to bridge a gap that, that there is between someone you don't know or someone you don't, like, you don't understand even. so. Hopefully that's, you know, what people take away from the film, even in Amarillo, where, you know, where it all happens.
0: I, I want to ask you a personal question. As someone who grew up here, became a, a professional, found some success away from Amarillo, and that success is tied to a specific depiction of Amarillo. What, what are your feelings about your hometown?
1: I mean, I love Amarillo. My, fam- my entire family still lives there. I, I'm in Amarillo all the time. My, you know, my, some of my best friends that I talk to on a daily basis are still on Amarillo. Uh, you know, I appreciate that. I, I think people, you know, pe- the outside of the country, they take Texas as, you know, very conservative, and even, even Amarillo gets a little bit stiffer. You know, the smaller the town, the more conservative people, you know, people are worried about it. But I've always, you know, I lo- I've always loved going back to Amarillo. And, I mean, even if I was raising kids, I would consider moving back to Amarillo because I feel like it's a good place to raise kids. I never personally wanted to come out and be like, oh, you know, it's a tough place to grow up, and people are so judgmental and all that I always always had a good perspective of it, so and we're twenty years past
0: we, these events i mean do you, do you think that you know from what you know of Amarillo having come back here so often, do you think that there has been a shift in acceptance of of people like Brian Dinicky?
1: Oh, for sure, for sure i'm a I mean just the the internet itself, you're talking from nineteen ninety seven till you know two thousand eighteen Geez, the world has changed like massively. I think just the, even those events at that time changed Amarillo. So I, I, like I said, I think it affected me growing up and how I viewed other people. So I, I can't see that it not having a positive effect on everyone else. And then into the internet age where you're exposed to a lot more things, you know, people just are generally more accepting overall of different cultures and hopefully, you know, it's like that. That's, I, I'm kind of a optimist when it comes to that sort of stuff.
0: And you know, having having done this, you know, your your first film. What's what's next for you guys?
1: Um, You know, we're currently in development on a on a couple of scripts. We've been kind of spitballing. We've just been. We're we're really small. We're basically a four man team. At you know, from the time our crew left production, it's just four of us guys. And uh, you know, we've been kind of carrying the you know all the all the deliverables, all the you know the editing, all the music. We we did all that ourselves in our own studio. So you're talking really small teams, so we haven't had too much time to come up for air and get creative and we just wanted to do this one right. So we have some other things that we've been tossing around, but we you know, we're not going right into production. We know that. So we're
0: five years you into know, the process, we, we, you, you need a break.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just you gotta let your creative cup kind of fill back up too. And I think, you know, when you're when you're when you put so much we put so much into this film and just so much time and, and, it, and it's and there was an emotional load that went with carrying the story from city to city and the Q&A's I you know I think once once we get it out it'll be kind of a, you know we're going to come up and take a breath and hopefully fill our creative cups again
0: you know the, the last thing I want to ask you is whether you're talking about it from a filmmaker's perspective whether you're talking about it from perspective of someone who has spent so much time with Brian Dennecke's family or with his friends describe Brian to me I mean tell me tell me who he was
1: for me personally, I always, you know, I always go back to when you're nineteen, you can learn a lot about someone through the music they listen to. And I I think that's how we try to capture Brian's spirit in the film was he, we you know, we we reached out to what was his favorite band and his favorite songs. So a lot of who he was is connected to that music and you some of the lyrics of those songs, you know, they, they speak a message of kind of anarchy but also acceptance. And so there's there's a there's a line in there that like, it seems like they're so harsh and they're so mean, but th- they're such accepting people. And that's why there's so many people that gravitate to that lifestyle, because a lot of people aren't accepted everywhere. For me, that was kind of the spirit. Everyone, everyone's stories about Brian, you know, are so, like, he was always the nicest kid, and he loved dogs. And he always, he, he was that friend you would call if you he needed help. And he was trying to make, you know, make Amarillo a more artsy place and he was selling shows, and, you know, he was helping put the signs out with the Dynamite Museum. You know, the world is, is a worse place having lost him. Amarillo is a worse place having lost him. And, you know, I think if you go back and, you know, listen to some of his, his favorite bands and read those lyrics, and you'll, you'll get a little bit of a glimpse into who he was.
0: Sheldon Chick, thank you so much for being on Hey Amarillo. I wish you guys the best of luck with the film.
1: Awesome, man. Thank you.
0: And that concludes another episode of Hey Amarillo Podcast. I want to say thanks to Sheldon Chick for being this week's guest. I appreciate his availability even during a really busy schedule for those guys. Um, if you want to learn more about the film, go to bombcityfilm.com uh, online. Be sure to watch the trailer there. Uh, you can uh, follow them on social media at Bomb City Film on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, If you uh, are somebody who watches movies on iTunes, Sheldon said that uh, one of the best things for them would be for you to pre-order it on iTunes. Uh, And then keep your eyes peeled for February 9th when it opens nationwide. Find more about Hey Amarillo at heyamarillo.com or Hey Amarillo on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Jason Boyette. Thank you for listening.